So if you already have the motivation to change your mind, you're like 90% of the way there. That's, um, that, that's huge, just having that motivation. At that point, if you can objectively evaluate the evidence, you have a good chance of changing your mind. This is the Limitless Athletes Podcast. I'm Tom Foxley, a founder of Mindset Rx and your host. And I believe that your beliefs define your success more than any other aspect of your mindset. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm willing to work as hard as I can. There is no past, there's no future, there's just this moment right here. If I did that, if I can get through that, like, come at me. Changing how I saw myself, like, as a man, not just as, as an athlete. It's okay that I struggle. It's okay, that's part of the deal. It's how I respond to it. Today on the Limitless Athlete Podcast, you'll be listening to a conversation I had with Jonas Kaplan, who is a cognitive neuroscientist at USC's Brain and Creativity Institute and co-director at Dornsife Neuroimaging Center. The theme of today is pretty much the structure of beliefs and what creates them. We stick to like this really broad, applicable or broadly applicable um, description of beliefs. So we don't talk much about applying them to like athlete specific examples, but we do discuss how this applies in general. It's my hope that by listening to the show, you can gain a deeper understanding of beliefs um, and how they're formed and the biological structures which are involved in the research behind them. I'm going to be listening to this a couple of times more. Like the irony is I could feel this belief around. I'm not smart enough to be having these kinds of conversations disrupting me throughout this. So I was processing that belief and becoming aware of it whilst discussing beliefs. So kind of meta. But alongside these kind of fundamentals of belief, we also touch on the role of the gut in our beliefs, what parts of our brain are responsible for beliefs and what kind of activate when we're discussing them or hearing information that is disruptive to them, how to challenge our beliefs successfully and the beliefs of others, the emerging research of psychedelics and the vagus nerve and its role in the way we feel. So there's a bunch in there. Long-time listeners of the show will be aware of the fact that we quite often host a debrief after this. Honestly, I don't know whether we'll be hosting the debrief after this one, although I'd really like to. It just depends on our time. We'll hopefully get around to it because I think it's a really, really important one to discuss. But next week, we will be releasing another podcast with a fascinating guest. So without further ado, here is Jonas Kaplan. So Jonas, thank you for joining me. Like I just said, um, really, really do appreciate you you joining me for this call. I'm glad to be here. I'm, I'm excited to talk to you. I'll, I'm going to do an intro after this and kind of record it separately, but I'd be interested to hear from you, like by way of description of your work and your interests, who are you? Yeah, I am. Uh, well, by trade, I am a cognitive neuroscientist. And uh, that means that I study how the brain works. You know, I've always been really fascinated with consciousness and the mystery of where our own mind comes from and what its relationship is to our biology. And so that's what I study. We try to link up uh, aspects of human psychology with what's happening in the brain. My uh, main tool for that, the thing I, I feel the most expertise in is functional brain imaging. So I use functional brain imaging to see what's happening in the brain while people do various things. 
And those things that people do that I'm most interested in have to do with uh, who we feel that we are and where our sense of identity and selfhood comes from. And that uh, also connects and bleeds into studying a lot of related topics like beliefs and values and also um, story and narrative, because a lot of our self is a story that we that we tell ourselves. So uh, that, that's what I do in a nutshell. The small stuff then. <laughs> um, where did that interest in consciousness start from? Oh, man, that's a good question. It's hard to trace back. I mean, it's just something that I always had. To me, it just seemed like, you know, the biggest mystery in the universe where our mind actually comes from. Um, I think, you know, it did take a turn at, at certain points. One of the things that influenced me was an, an early experience with psilocybin mushrooms, um, where I had uh, some profound experiences, changes in my experience of the world and in, in myself that were very clearly related to biological things that were happening in my brain. Because when you ingest something like a, a mushroom like that, and it interacts with the uh, serotonin receptors in your brain, uh, you know, it's that, that chemistry uh, that, that you really experience the link between the chemistry, the biochemistry and your actual mind, you know, things that you take for granted about yourself um, and very basic things about your experience of the world, like time, um, can be changed by changing your biochemistry. And, and to me, that really drove home what a, a biological thing our consciousness is. And, uh, you know, from there on, that's, that's where my attention was focused. How old were you when that happened? Probably like 17. Okay, like the normal kind of playing with hallucinogens. Yeah, I, I guess. I guess it is that normal. It's more, more and more normal nowadays, which is actually nice to see. Yeah, it's interesting that kind of that drop off in the eighties and nineties, and then it's really, really coming back into into vogue. Yeah, it's coming back to vogue, and you know, for us as scientists who are interested in this, it's great because the governmental regulations have pre prevented scientific research on on hallucinogens for so long, and now that those things are loosening up, there's just a deluge of information coming in, and it's great to see. Yeah, it's a fascinating time, like really fascinating time, especially with the kind of that added. Uh, focus with it like it seemed like with timothy leary for example it seemed like anything was game at that point and i don't know because i wasn't there but that's what it seems like to to look back at it and now it seems like things have been kind of tightened or or focused a little bit more yeah i think you're right I think there's a little more rigor in the in the scientific mm -hmm. process now and it's, it's treated as a legitimate um potential help for for certain clinical issues so uh yeah it's, it's different lens that we look at it with now where I want to kick this off in earnest is a quote from the piece that you sent me. Um, you write that beliefs do not exist apart from the rest of the mind. They're uh, the beams and sometimes the foundation of a psychological house. So I'd like to dive into essentially how you arrive at this, starting off with probably a definition. What are beliefs? That's a good question. And, you know, it's not something that scientists actually agree upon. A belie belief is not really a technical term in psychology. It's more of a folk psychology term. And, you know, to me, it just means something you hold true about the world. We, the brain is constantly building models of reality. And those models of reality that we have in our heads help us to navigate the world and to predict what's going to happen and to understand what does happen. And beliefs are the, the elements of those models. They're things that we hold true about the world and they, they influence our expectations. Now, the, the metaphor that you just mentioned, the, the, you know, what I was trying to get at is that the beliefs are not independent from one another. They, they uh, build upon each other and that makes them difficult to change. So we have a lot of research from psychology for decades now showing that 
uh, you know, for example, misinformation, once you accept something that's, that's false into your mental model of the world, it's very hard to dig it out. And one of the reasons it's hard to dig out is because as soon as we do believe something, we start to elaborate on it. You know, we think about all the other uh, things about the world and how those things relate. And, and we start to uh, build upon that foundation. And eventually we have a, a whole house where one of the beams may be faulty. Mm. Is a faulty beam in that, in that scenario one that's different from the truth yeah, that's what I mean by a faulty beam there, just a, one that doesn't actually correspond to reality. I mean, sure. if your goal is to have your beliefs correspond to reality, to be true, you know, and, and there's, there's good reason to want that, um, you know, we make better predictions about the world if our, if our models are correct. Uh, interestingly, not everybody does want that. And that's actually one of the curious things about, about human psychology is that, that people have lots of different reasons for believing things. And having those beliefs be true is not always the prevailing motivator. In fact, if you ask people, you know, is it good to have your beliefs true? Do you want your beliefs to actually change with evidence if it turns out that they're wrong? People don't always say yes. You know, a significant portion of, of people in the U.S. will answer that question. No, it's, you know, it's important to maintain my beliefs and, and to stick to them because they're important to me. Is that certainty driving that? It's uh, it's certainty. Yeah. I mean, when you, uh, when you uh, have a belief, it does provide some some stability. Um, you know, uh, part of what we don't like is is uncertainty, and, and beliefs help us to uh, provide some kind of a ground. But it's also identity. You know, when, when beliefs become part of who we are and who, and who we think we are, we develop a very special attachment to them. And you know, for example, if I decide I am a uh, a bee person, and I'm going to be really into bees, and uh, I'm going to have uh, a, a family of bees that I keep in my backyard, and I'm going to talk with other beekeepers, and you know, I'm going to believe certain things about bees. These things can become part of who you are. So that makes them very difficult to change because not only is it who you are, but it's also who your social circle, right? We tend to associate with other people who believe the same things that we do. We find people who share similar beliefs. If I'm a flat earther, I spend a lot of time talking with other people who believe that the earth is flat and I connect with those people. Mm. And if you ask me to change my mind about, you know, whether the earth is, is flat or round, uh, you're asking me to give up a lot. I mean, not only do I have to change this one little belief, but now, uh, you know, I might spend a significant portion of my time associating and socializing with people based around this fact. And so, you know, this is, this is what I mean by how our beliefs get connected to other aspects of our lives. They're not individual atomic units that we can just delete like a folder on our hard drive. You know, they're, they're connected to the web of our entire cognitive and social lives. It seems like there's so much sunk cost in our belief. It seems like once we've kind of said, this is part of me, to get rid of it is so much bigger than saying, I want to change this. And like, you could probably have the conscious willpower to say like, I want to do this, whatever willpower actually means. Um, like you could, you say like, I want to, like, I want to change this, but do you like this is bigger than you realize. It's bigger than you realize, which is why, you know, because it's so much easier to accept something is true than it is to excise something that's false. Uh, it puts a lot of, pressure on us. I mean, we, we really need to be careful about what we accept as true, given this fact, right? It, it behooves us to be somewhat skeptical about every new piece of information. And uh, that's difficult in today's world when we're deluged with so much information from so many different sources. So, you know, this world we're living in of, of social media and the incredible amount of information the brain as 
is being asked to process is, is definitely not something that it's it's built for. But then I suppose there's certain beliefs that are passed passed down in a kind of traditional sense that make sense and apply, like kind of some social norms, for example. Um, it's good to follow these things. Some kind of um, yes, traditions um, kind of previously proved to be useful beliefs, um, but separating those from the kind of what you disbelieve is. It, it seems it seems like a lot of efforts go through every single belief that you've ever encountered and yeah. filter that down. It's true because we kind of just accept the cultural reality that that we're given, mm. and it is a big task to go through and do surgery on that whole cultural reality and figure out which of these norms and traditions are actually good for us and which are we just doing out of some kind of a habit. I think it's important to do that, and I, I try to do that myself. But you're right; it's, it's a huge task. It's very very difficult to do. I'm guessing this is where your relationship with Sam Harris comes in, um, identifying what is really your identity and what is like how much of this belief structure that you've put together or had put together for you is reality and serving you. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, uh, Sam and I were uh, at UCLA training to be neuroscientists together, and the first project we did was on the nature of religious belief in the brain. So we were interested in studying, you know, for example, when people believe things like there is a God, is that the same biological neural process as when you believe, you know, uh, Joe Biden exists? So we asked people who were strong believers in Christianity. We had a, a group of fundamentalist Christians and a group of staunch atheists and we put them in the fMRI scanner and we asked them to evaluate statements that were either religious or non-religious. And so we can compare what's happening in the brain when you believe something and it's a religious statement versus when it's not a religious statement. And really, we didn't find any differences between believing religious uh, statements and believing non-religious statements. We didn't find any differences between the Christians and the atheists. It seemed like when you believe something, you believe it, it's the same thing happening in your brain regardless of who you are or what it is that you're believing. Yeah, it's fundamentally true to you. It's a subjective truth, right? Yeah, it's something that you accept. It's part of what what, what you think about the world. And uh, you know, there are certain topics that 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 uh, hit us differently. And when we think about them, um, they evoke certain additional processes, things that are really important to us. So, actually, in that study, when we look at religious belief compared with non-religious belief. Both the atheists and the Christians did activate certain brain structures that are related to uh, emotion and feeling a lot more. Just because it's sort of more, it's it's a, it's a deeper issue for for both groups. So there was no difference between believing and disbelieving, but thinking about certain topics that are really important to us often evoke a whole different kind of psychology for us. And mm -hmm. it could be religion, it could be politics, um, anything that that people really hold as part of their identity does this for us. What are the different sources of beliefs? There's so many different sources of beliefs. I mean, you know, um, it's uh, it, a lot of a lot of it is social. A lot of it comes from other people, and that could be um, through casual interaction. It could be through formal education. Um, a lot of it comes through just your own reasoning process, where you do dedu deduction and induction based on evidence that you gather, experiences that you have. Um, so there are a lot of a lot of different sources of belief, and uh, you know. Uh, it, there doesn't seem to be any difference in the brain, regardless of, of where the belief came from. As long as you accept something is true, once you get to that point, you believe it. 
there must be things that are more likely to reinforce a belief, uh, like repetition, obviously, uh, emotion being attached to it. Is there anything else that's more likely to make a belief stick? You know, uh, things like even uh, ease of processing is one thing. So the more um, easily understandable a statement is, uh, the more likely people are to accept it as true. And you can even uh, do this. Uh, my, my colleague Norbert Schwartz has done these experiments where you change the font of the statement to something that's difficult to read. And when you do that, people are less likely to think that it's true. It's because we use this this feeling of like how easy and nice it is to process as a proxy for whether or not it's true. So if we just, you know, if we can really uh, re read it easily and it makes sense to us and, and it's straightforward, that helps. As you said, repetition is another thing, just hearing something over and over again. Part of what repetition does is it adds these feelings of familiarity to the statement. And those feelings underlie uh, a lot of these decisions. And this is actually an important point because a lot of people don't realize how much emotion and feeling is wrapped into our cognitive process. You know, as neuroscientists, we really haven't been able to separate these processes. People have tried you know, to, to separate rational cognition, uh, deliberative, deliberative processing, or sometimes in psychology we call it executive functioning, from emotional or affective processing on the other hand. But these things really act in tandem, and there are so many feelings and uh, intuitions that we have that, that go along with our thinking process that are really hard to separate and, and really influence us quite a bit. Yeah, well, that's um, to bring it back to the original part of the conversation. Like that's one thing you learn through psychedelic use, right? You kind of you see the how messy our mental state is and how kind of overlapping it is, and you see the well, <laughs> you see a lot of things, but that's one of the things you see. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. You can you can kind of see your own thought process happening to some degree. You can see some some yeah. perspective on it. Yeah. Talking about what reinforces beliefs, is it possible to once you have identified a belief that you think would be useful for you to change, use the kind of the opposites to dismantle it? It is possible. Um, and you know, just you know, when you said you've identified a belief that you want to change. One of the keys there is, is wanting to change it. Motivation is, is so important. You know, a lot of times when we're talking about people not changing their minds, it's an external force trying to change their minds. Like, you know, we want people to take vaccines. And so we want to change their minds about what they believe about vaccines. And part of the difficulty there is that people aren't motivated to change their minds. They don't want to because there's actually more motivation to keep their beliefs the same. And some of those are things we mentioned already, like, like social motivations. So if you already have the motivation to change your mind, you're like 90% of the way there. That's, um, that, that's huge, just having that motivation. At that point, if you can objectively evaluate the evidence, you have a good chance of changing your mind. What's the deal with unconscious or subconscious beliefs? Um, it's kind of, it seems to me like if you read any self-help book, it's going to mention it. And it seems like there's varying degrees of understanding there. Um, like, yeah, like if, if I keep it open-ended like that, what's the deal with unconscious subconscious belief versus conscious beliefs? Yeah, that's, that's a tricky subject. You know, social psychologists have, have talked for a long time about attitudes, which, which don't need to be conscious. They're things that we, ways that we react to the world um, that reflect some information we have about the world that we don't necessarily even know that we're, that we're processing. And this isn't a binary thing. There are levels of consciousness. You know, sometimes we make decisions and we're just thinking so quickly that we don't take time to reflect on all of the feelings and thoughts that are, that are underlying our decision. But if we were to, 
we might have access to those things and we might be able to see what's going on. So the fact that unconscious biases affect our beliefs and our decision-making and our action um, is a really interesting aspect of our psychology, but it doesn't mean that those things need to stay unconscious. So, you know, for example, mindfulness training is, is one thing that helps here. This is the, the process of training yourself to notice all of the things that happen in your mind on a moment-to-moment basis. Normally, we're so, so goal-directed and so involved in what it is that we're doing that we don't necessarily notice all of the mental processes that are happening within us. But if we stop and we pay attention to the present moment, we can notice things that were maybe previously subconscious and make them conscious. That's sort of where the, where the term mindfulness comes from. You're mindful of what's happening. And there's a real value to that. Um, without getting too stuck into the weeds on meditation, where, where would you recommend starting for people? I'm not an expert in, in training people in meditation, so um, I don't know. I suppose um, I, I do have a, a bias in that I am involved with, with Sam Harris's app, Waking Up, and mm-hmm. so I think that's a, a very useful resource for people. And uh, but uh, you know, again, I'm not I'm not an expert in training people how to do meditation. Yeah, it's um, I think I've tried every meditation app under the sun, and it's yeah, by far the one that actually cool. works. Oh, great! Yeah, it's um, it's the first meditation app where I saw or kind of identified what I feel like I was supposed to identify, um, which was reality as it is, or as I believe it is. Um, and yeah, and nothing else has touched the side in that. Um, so it's been, yeah, it, it, it's so beneficial to me. That's great. But you know, it's not always the same thing that works for everybody. So, mm. you know, the, the fact that you tried a lot of different things is great. And sometimes it requires that. And then you'll hit upon one, one uh, teacher or one uh, method that, that really works for you how much of our behaviors thoughts and emotions are driven by beliefs it's a it's a a lot but you know it's hard to um separate that out i think there's a you know constant feedback cycle the the mind is a dynamical system which always has like a constant symphony playing and it's not easy to talk about one thing causing another independently of the whole symphony because you know, yes, beliefs cause behaviors, but then behaviors also cause beliefs. So if, uh, you know, I'm uh, interested in um, flat earthness, that's going to cause me to maybe seek out some information about it, which is then going to affect my belief. And so it's all very, very complicated to parse out the causality there. You hear things band around like 90% of our actions is determined by unconscious the unconscious mind for example and are there any kind of numbers on that that are actually accurate or proven no i I don't think we can put a number on it like that but yes we are unconscious of so many of the things that our mind does you know if you think about even right now in this present moment as you're listening to me speak there is uh, pressure waves that are bouncing against your ear at various frequencies and changing over time. And somehow your brain is parsing all that frequency information to dissect the different phonemes, the different you know, f- uh, sound elements of the language to put together into words, and then understanding the whole syntax of the sentence that I'm saying and where it's going and presenting to your consciousness just some understanding of, of what it is I'm saying. You don't even think about any of that. You know, you don't know about all of that uh, auditory and sublinguistic processing that's going on for you to arrive at the sort of miracle of understanding the speech that I'm saying right now. 
So consciousness really is, in many ways, the, the tip of a, of a very big iceberg uh, that, that lays below in the subconscious. The kind of the idea of an iceberg leads quite nicely to the, I can't remember who it was, but discussing, oh, that's really going to bug me now that I can't remember. But there's um, the idea that Freud was talking about the unconscious as the kind of the Every, the the iceberg that you didn't see or the part of the iceberg that you didn't see and then there's been ideas that there's a kind of i suppose Jung would talk to a collective unconscious which kind of i'd, I'd be interested in hearing your opinion on but then there seems to be like some sort of phylogenetic kind of memory something that's kind of deeper down in us as well that also is influencing our predispositions and beliefs um i realize there's zero question in there um but i'd like no, to hear I, your opinion. I, I see what you're getting at no, it's definitely true so you know one of the one of the ways of, of thinking about this and how knowledge and belief influence our action is to think about how the, the brain process perceptual information, which is largely through prediction. So this is a, um, a growing understanding of, of how the brain works by uh, not just receiving information from the outside world and interpreting it, but by making predictions about what kind of information it's about to receive, and then comparing what happens to those predictions. And, you know, when you go into a room, for example, and you're walking into a classroom, you, you know what a classroom is, you expect to see desks and chairs there. And because you have that expectation, your brain generates the hypothesis that, well, I'm going to probably see a chair here. And then when some visual information hits the retina and gets processed up the chain through the visual cortex, this hypothesis is quickly confirmed. And that hypothesis generation and matching sequence is a much more efficient way of, of processing the visual environment. You can't possibly process all of the sensory information that's coming into you. You have to really um, do it in this predictive way. And those predictions rely on knowledge and beliefs about what happens in a classroom and, and what's out there. Some of that knowledge comes from your experience. You've, you've walked into classrooms before. But there, is, there are aspects of that, that knowledge that um, guide those hypotheses that come from deep in our evolutionary history. For example, the brain has beliefs or you know, so-called beliefs about the way shadows work. And you can demonstrate this to yourself uh, through visual illusions where, you know, if you see, uh, maybe you've seen this illusion where there's a, a, a patch of, uh, you know, a square that's underneath a, a shadow and a square that's outside the shadow. And if you measure them with a, a light meter, you can tell that there's exactly the same amount of light coming off of them. But one appears really dark to you and the other appears really light to you. It's because your brain is making certain assumptions about the way light and shadows work that that come from this deep phylogenetic history that you're talking about so these are these are kinds of beliefs that influence and are built into our very perceptual process that that don't come from experience and learning but we have both what do you think an individual needs to know about beliefs in order to i suppose people listen to the show because they want to maximize their potential they want to live their life they want to fully commit to it they want to kind of athletically and in their broader life they want to fulfill as much of their potential as they possibly could um what do those kind of people what do we need to know about the way beliefs work in order to um, help us with that goal i think if you want belief flexibility and i think there's there's a, a strong reason to want belief flexibility if you're trying to maximize your life, you know, in the, in the same way you want flexibility of your physical body, it helps to be able to bend and turn your mind in, in the same way. And um, 
I, I think part part of what we need to do is to take a step back from our beliefs and have some perspective on them. You need to separate your yourself from what you believe and treat your beliefs as provisional. They are there as temporary models of the world to help you navigate things. But if there's something wrong with that model, you got to be able to let it go. You can't be attached to it. You know, so, so having some kind of detachment from your belief, I think is really important. Now, how to achieve that is, is another uh, question. And I think it's possible to do, it starts with the intention to have some detachment from your beliefs. And I think there are certain kinds of meditation training that can help with this. But instead of thinking of the beliefs as just, you know, who we are and what we are, um, you know, people can get very attached to, I am uh, this kind of person and I believe this and there's, there's some value to that. But I think we need to maintain some, some detachment from our beliefs. And that's really the challenge for me. It also seems like, where do you stop as well? Like, where do you stop questioning your beliefs? Because you could keep on going and keep on going and keep on going until, well, the ego dissolves, essentially. It seems like you could get to that point where even with a pen and a notepad, if you kept on writing about what you believe and whether you can prove that something is absolutely true, it seems like it could never end, but I doubt you'd you'd lose a lot of what you'd originally signed up for, which I suppose is just a belief in itself. I mean, that process could help you get to the core insight that your beliefs are, are provisional. And so for that purpose, it could be really useful. And yeah, I think evaluating your beliefs is a is a lifelong thing. I don't think we need to have absolute certainty in everything we believe, right? I mean, you you can believe things in a in a probabilistic way, like um, you know, like like the weather. It's Eighty percent chance of of rain tomorrow, and given that there's a high likelihood, I, I better have an umbrella at least on hand. So you know, if you treat your beliefs as as uh, as you know, allowing them to have different degrees of uncertainty, that can really help. I think when people don't have have complete certainty about their beliefs, those are usually problematic beliefs. Now, I, I, I uh, this friend um, Anthony Magnabosco, I don't know if you have ever come across him on on YouTube. He runs this, this great YouTube channel called uh, Street Epistemology is the technique that they, they do. And what they do is they go out on, on the street and they just have conversations with people about things that they really believe strongly. And it's really fascinating to watch because he always starts the conversation by asking them, you know, how certain are you in this belief? Let's say it's a belief that God exists. It's a common one that people believe strongly. And people will say, oh, I'm 100% certain. And then he goes through this conversation. It takes maybe five or 10 minutes. And the, the conversation is just a series of questions, really. It's sort of a Socratic method. You know, where do you, why do you have that confidence? And where do you think you got this belief from? And how do you decide that this is true and how it isn't true? And you can, you can see people, uh, you know, thinking through the process and questioning themselves. And just that amount of self-reflection for five minutes is often enough to take their belief from a certainty of 100% maybe down to like 99 or 98%. And once you have a little wedge in that crack, uh, anything can happen. I, I think it's that that 100% certainty in one's own belief that is that is actually worrisome. Mm. It seems to me crazy that you could go through life without questioning it, but it's uh, maybe the norm of a significant percentage of the population yeah, I mean, it can be really painful to do. You know, if you were growing, if you were yeah. brought up in a religious family, and and God is very important to you, and the beliefs of the church, you know, are the foundation of your community, 
and you can sense that going down this path is going to be problematic with respect to those things, you pretty much just avoid it. Yeah, it, it'd be far easier to simply seek out information experiences that reinforce that belief. That's right. And it's, you know, unfortunately, that is becoming easier and easier for us to do as the uh, social media mechanisms help us to do it, to, uh, you know, encounter information that is consistent with our beliefs and to avoid information that is inconsistent with our beliefs. Probably the, the biggest um, reinforcer of belief right now is this fact that it's very uh, difficult to come across people and uh, places and, and communities that, that are very different from you. Yeah, it seems like social media should have a, a requirement to, to offer up a percentage of an opposing view at any given opportunity. I would be in favor of a law that required social media to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And it'd just be so much more interesting as well. It's true. It'd be so much more interesting. I mean, if you do want opposing views, you really have to seek them out. You know, you have to put in a good deal of effort to, to find, to, to, to crack the uh, glass bubble that you're in and, and get outside of it. I think it's, it's worth doing. And it's probably something that all of us should be doing. How do you make an effort to do that? I mean, you just say, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, find some alternative views on this. You can set yourself up with, you know, think about what your sources of news are and then think about a way to change them on a, on a daily basis, either to get more variety. Um, there's a, there's a website called allsides.com that I like. Instead of presenting you news from one position they'll sample something, you know, the same issue from the left and from the right and from the center. And you can kind of get a, a better triangulation of what's going on that way. Hey, if you're enjoying this episode, chances are you'll enjoy our free ebook, How to Stop Substandard Self-Critical Plateaus and Unleash Your Potential. It's a step-by-step guide to finding your mojo again and getting back to the athlete you know you can be. It's free, you just have to stick your email address in and download it. To find it, head to mindsetrx.com slash ebook. That's mindsetrxd.com slash ebook. Now, let's get on with the show. I'm going to presume that all of this applies to kind of the beliefs that you hold about yourself as well, like your own potential and your own ability in certain skills. Um, is there any, yeah, what, what's the research on, on that at the moment? Like where, where, what do we know about it? That's very interesting. You know, the thing about with beliefs about the self is they, uh, they, they can be special. Um, we, we see that there are special things that happen in the brain. We think about, yourself and what kind of a person you are compared with when you think about other people. Um, there, there are special, special brain networks that seem to be involved in that. The interesting thing to me about beliefs about yourself is that they can become kind of self-fulfilling prophecies. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there are, um, for example, um, there's research with children showing that, you know, the way they think about their intelligence um, influences the way that they learn. So if you believe that intelligence is a fixed factor that you're, that you're just born with, um, then there are, you, you sort of take less action to in, improve your knowledge and, and mental skill. But if you believe that intelligence is something that you can grow and learn and achieve through interaction with the world, then that's what you're going to do. So our, our beliefs about ourself and a, our beliefs about the way that our minds and our bodies work are incredibly important because they, uh, in a large part, determine uh, how we're going to live. 
it seems like there's the kind of there's the danger of falling down the secret path where you think that you're completely everything is determined by the beliefs that you hold and that if you just change your beliefs you'll manifest success for you or whatever it is and then there seems like there's the the truthful path is somewhere in the middle of purely the the like entirely objective world where this is just yeah this is free from belief so like it seems like something difficult to negotiate to find that middle ground oh such a good point yeah absolutely i mean just just believing that you can fly is certainly not enough to uh, warrant jumping off a cliff um but yeah you're right you got to find that find that middle path and and uh be discerning about that and that can be difficult what, what do you think the limit of that is like where do you think that we, we get to the point that is a bit too close to manifestation I mean, there, you know, that whole secret thing, there's like a supernatural element to it a little bit, you know, so it, it doesn't quite make sense that you could manifest certain things in the world. I mean, without actually doing the things that you need to do to achieve them. So um, if you are trying to manifest something, you really need to figure out what the path there is and do it and not not just believe and believing that you can do something is maybe one element of it, but it certainly isn't enough. Yeah, I suppose that falls into one of the things that I'm really interested about in this conversation, which is what misconceptions that people hold about beliefs. Hmm. Uh, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, there, there are a, a lot of in, intuitions we have about, about our beliefs that, that aren't true. Um, uh, you know, the, the feelings about we have about beliefs are so convincing to us that um, they can be misleading. So, you know, that feeling of, of certainty and of, of being right um, just is so compelling that that often it leads us to um, just assume that that we're right about things, and so I, I think we need to um, separate ourselves from those feelings a little bit, and to recognize that just because something feels right and feels good to us, um, doesn't mean that that it is right. Switching tack just a little bit, um, where does the gut, vagus nerve, insula, amygdala connection come into beliefs? Because like this is something that I'm. I'm I really want to kind of for everyone in the audience. I want I wanted to kind of bring together this hard science point of view or the kind of the um, the truth. Essentially, I want to get as close to the truth as we possibly can. It seems like examining the psychophysiology. I suppose we yeah. can find like kind of there's a lot of value in it. So yeah, where does where does all that come into the equation? Yeah. So so this relates to the the role of, of feeling in belief. And the vagus nerve is a nerve that traverses throughout the body, throughout the viscera of the body, and makes contact with many of our internal organs, the, the gut, the heart, the lungs. And it brings this information up to the brain. And those sensations from the body um, form the basis of a lot of the feelings that we have. You know, you're about to uh, get on stage and you feel butterflies in your stomach. Um, you uh, feel your heart racing uh, when you're about to start the race, something like that. All of these sensations are, are carried to the brain through the vagus nerve. And one of the parts of the brain where this information is integrated and interpreted and fit into our decision-making process is a part of the brain called the insular cortex. The insular cortex is a little island of of uh, cerebral cortex uh, right between the the uh, temporal and the frontal lobes of the brain you kind of have to pull open the lobes to see it. And it's very important for, for these feelings. It seems to be um, in a large part, the basis for these feelings we have of the internal state of our body. And, you know, when we study belief, this is another, another study they did with Sam, where we put people with very strong beliefs in the fMRI scanner 
and we challenged their beliefs with statements and evidence. These are people who had very strong political beliefs. And when we argue against their beliefs, we provide evidence that their beliefs might not be correct. Uh, we found that people who activated the insular cortex more when they were being challenged were less likely to change their minds. And this fits with the idea that these negative feelings we have when we're challenged, and it just feels bad and we want to get away from it, um, are, are very important for how we react to information. And this is a part of the brain that really originally dealt with making us feel bad when we ate something that wasn't good for us. You know, we want to recoil from spoiled food or um, something that's just disgusting to you. You know, disgust is one of the main drivers of activity in the insular cortex. And these are very old biological systems, these affective systems that help to keep us alive for so long in our history. You know, if you're going to um, eat something that's poisonous, that could kill you. So this is a, a very essential part of our biology. And it seems like it's being repurposed now for other aspects of our higher cognition, like dealing with information that might be bad for us. You, know, you have the same feeling when you encounter a piece of information that you don't like as when you encounter a piece of food that you don't like. It's a very similar biological system, a similar thing happening in your body. And uh, that, that's why these, these feelings are, are so important. The amygdala is another part of the brain that's very important for affective processing. The amygdala is, is a detector of emotionally salient things in the environment. It's particularly responsive to uh, fear, to things that threaten us. So, for example, if you're swimming in the water and you see a, a fin pop out of the water, um, your, your amygdala is going to notice that um, very, very early on and signal to your brain that, that something needs to be done. The amygdala also uh, predicts how resistant people are going to be to new information. So if people activate the amygdala while they're being challenged, they're less likely to change their minds as well. It's as if this new information is, is somehow threatening to us. So we have these very old biological systems that are there to keep us alive uh, in the savanna that are now um, repurposed and somehow dealing with this, this situation we have with information. I think it's important to remember that we are these biological animals. You know, we are not computers. We're, we're using this flesh system that, that has is connected to a heart and, and a set of lungs and a gut to make truth decisions about, about information. It's a very interesting predicament we find ourselves in. It seems to be fascinating that it's, it really is a two-way street of communication that like one influences the other and the other, because I kind of, I think for a lot of my life, I was of the opinion that I was just carting around my consciousness and my body. And like my consciousness was a separate entity to that. Um, but through breath work, for example, through cold exposure, through experience with psychedelics, through um, meditation, journaling, like the kind of like mix of physical and uh, mental actions, I, I felt both change. Um, and it's like, it seems like we are just one integrated system or a system of systems, I suppose, as opposed to like just one moving another one around. That's that's totally true. That's exactly right. I mean, the, the the integration between the nervous system and the body is um, incredibly complicated in ways that we don't even understand. You know, there's, neuroscientists have been learning a lot uh, in the last few years about the interaction between the gut and the brain, for example. And you can find that even the microbiota in the gut, you know, the different kinds of bacteria you have living in your gut can produce chemical reactions that, that change the way the nervous system behaves and, and affect your brain. 
So these interactions are incredibly complex. And you know, we used to think as, as uh, people studying consciousness used to think that you could just kind of take the brain out and put it in a vat and connect up the cranial nerves to some wires that you could, you know, send some visual input through the, through the uh, optical nerve and send some sound input through the auditory nerve. And you have a brain that would basically just sit there conscious in a vat. That might be possible in theory, but in practice, you're going to change consciousness so much by doing that. Um, you know, the brain sits in a liquid. It sits in cerebrospinal fluid. It's bathed in the chemistry of the body. And those chemicals and the chemical milieu that, that make up the, the soup that the brain sits in is, is changing all the time based on what we eat and, and how we're acting and, and whether we're exercising or not. All of these things are changing the chemical environment that the brain lives in. And so, yeah, it's very hard to, to separate it out and to think of it as a, a uh, independent ent entity. Um, there was that, what was that uh, show on Netflix uh, recently where they had the consciousness that you could just kind of pull out of the back of someone's head, all, car carbon, altered carbon, what was it called? I can't remember. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so you could put yourself into another body essentially. Yeah. And you just put yourself in another body and it would take them like maybe a few minutes to get used to using the new body, but then they would be fine. I think that you know completely underestimates what it would be like to actually switch your your brain to a different a whole different biochemical situation. Talking about biochemistry, there's something that like I kind of I can't have you on the call and not ask you about. Um what are your thoughts about the pineal gland and DMT? Yeah, I I think it's like a it's one of these things that's like a cool theory, but I think it's you know so just to just to recap the idea is that um there are chemicals that are produced by the brain, in particular the pineal gland, that um, may lead to psychedelic experiences like DMT itself or some DMT analogs. And there's some thought that, you know, maybe like near-death experiences when the pineal gland might release some, some chemicals that give people these kind of hallucinatory experiences that, that, that sound very psychedelic. Um, I think in, in the... In one abstract sense, it's got to be true in that, you know, psychedelic experiences were not created by the psychedelic substances. They were always possible based on the actual biochemistry of, of the brain. And so the, the potential for those experiences is certainly within the brain. And many of the psychedelic substances we ingest are analogs of uh, neurotransmitters. They're very similar. They have to interact with the, with the neural receptors that are, that are there already. Whether our pineal gland actually releases DMT in any significant quantity to cause the experiences, I, I don't think there's any actual strong evidence of that yet. So I think it's kind of a neat theory, but um, I remain fairly skeptical of it. Cool. Um, where does the default mode, a default mode network come into um, beliefs? So the default mode network is a set of brain regions that operate in, in synchrony. You know, the, one of the new perspective of neuroscience is the brain is kind of like a big symphony that has lots of different parts that, that work together at different times. And one of the ways we can understand the brain is by looking at um, who plays together at the same time. And the default mode network is like one section of the orchestra. It's a set of brain regions that are very far apart, but, but tend to play at the same time. You, you see them going up and down together. And they tend to synchronize when people are uh, doing certain cognitive tasks in particular um, just sitting around mind wandering is one of the one of the big drivers of the default mode and that's in fact how it was first discovered when people in neuroimaging experience were asked 
experiments were asked to do nothing, just lie there and rest. And what you do in those situations is, you know, think about what you're going to do tomorrow or remember what you did yesterday. And there's a kind of mental time travel that happens. And, you know, the way that I characterize this mode of cognition is that it's narrative cognition. It, It has to do with making stories and remembering events and experiences and feelings and stitching them together in a story that is a way of us making sense of the world. And this is a, these kinds of stories are, are very important for the way we understand things. We spend much of our day in some kind of narrative processing, whether it's through uh, entertainment and movies and reading books or watching sports. I mean, even when we watch sports, we turned it into a story that has heroes and villains and redemptions and revenges. And um, so this is just a basic way that the brain understands the world. And one of the one of the important things the brain uses narrative to understand is ourselves. You know, we have a self that extends throughout time. We're, we're existing in each present moment, and we have a, a series of experiences. But to put together our memories of those experiences and our expectations about the future into an idea of who or what we are, it's basically a storytelling process. You, know, you asked me earlier in this um, podcast about where my interest in, in consciousness came from. And I had to go back and make some kind of a story out of um, my, my memories and, and put it in a, in a narrative form so that people can understand it. And those, those self-narratives become very important for who we are and, and many of our beliefs and values are, are tied into them. And so it's, it's no surprise that when we look at what's happening in the brain, when people think about their deepest, most important beliefs, we see activity in this, this same brain network, in the default mode network, because I think really what it's doing is, is helping us to make meaning out of, out of the world, make sense of things over a long period of time, not, not in the moment, but extended in time, meaning that's extended over time. It feels like um, there's this kind of a screensaver almost that exists in your mind. It's, it feels like it's kind of a, when, when there's nothing else going on, like for, for example, especially previously, I've done a lot of work on this in the last kind of I don't know, five years, six years, but previously, if I'd let my mind wander, it would become the, like it'd reinforce the narrative or it'd play again, the narrative of an anxious person. I struggle with these kind of tasks um, in a very kind of non-serving pattern. And it seemed like, again, the repetition of that from an internal point of view reinforced that. Um, and becoming mindful of it, journaling actually helped a lot because I was able to get what I was thinking out to paper and seeing it as something separate from myself. Um, but yeah, it seems like there's a lot of value in observing what's within the, like kind of that screen safe mode. Yeah, that's right. And this is another one of those places where there's some kind of a sweet spot where if you engage with this kind of mindset too much, you get this kind of ruminative, anxious, uh, overthinking um, mindset. And, you know, that we see in people who have this kind of ruminative um, major depression that they have overactive default mode network. On the other hand, if you um, don't engage with, with narrative thought, um, meditation is one of the things that reduces default mode network activity. If you focus on the present moment alone, that is actually a very useful mindset to attain. Um, but it but it doesn't help you with with some of the things that you need to do in actually organizing your life and in, in figuring out who you really want to be and what's what's mm-hmm. the best narrative to have to actually move forward and achieve the things that you want to achieve. So again, there's some kind of a, a sweet spot with with accessing this mode of thought. And a, you know, I, I think actually one of the misunderstandings about meditation is that people think that the goal is to reach this state of quiet mind 
and to stay in it. And I don't think that's true. I, I think what we want to learn in meditation is the skill of manipulating which mode of thought that we're in at any given moment. And we, we want to be able to access the present-mindedness of a complete, quiet-minded state of mindfulness. But we also want to be able to access this mind-wandering, free-flowing, uh, less goal-directed uh, mode of thought as well, because it has a lot of advantages. You know, it's, it has a lot of advantages for creativity, for example. We find that creative people are really good at, at, at switching back and forth between these different mindsets. They'll spend a lot of time just brainstorming, letting their minds go, and switching back into some kind of goal-directed thought where they edit and, and uh, select from those thoughts and put it together and then sort of go back into mind-wandering. So having, a, having the reins of your own mind, I think, is what the goal of meditation is. Is there any link between, for I suppose, personality types or um, big five personality tests, things like that, and beliefs that we hold? Is there any kind of overlap that we can we can find there, or is it more kind of a a theme that would be pervasive? Uh, that's a good question. I'm not sure. Uh, I don't know of any relationship between uh, personality measures and and belief, but. Um, certainly people vary in in how they deal with evidence and how they seek out new information you know there are, there are differences across the political spectrum for example conservatives tend to deal with it in a different way than liberals do and so yeah this is this is uh, something that we that we all uh, we all differ on some of the basic psychological processes that contribute to belief yeah if you were going to kind of sum up how to look for beliefs and then dismantle them that you wanted to dismantle what would you be looking for like how would you start that journey if you if you're kind of if you're aware that okay some beliefs i have won't serve me some are um uncomfortable or yeah some 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 won't serve me what like where would you start with that where would you start by looking for them like if you don't know what they were they were like you've mentioned meditation um but then what process do you go through yeah meditation can help you to cultivate the basic skill of mindfulness, but I think then what you have to do is apply that mindfulness to your everyday life. So um, what's important is that you're actually paying attention to what's happening in your mind when you're out there interacting with other people and things are happening. You know, your cousin says something to you about um, his views on abortion that upset you. And it's in those moments when we discover how we feel and what we really believe when we're, when we're interacting with other people and, and coming in contact with the world. And that's when we need to apply that skill that we learned in mindfulness and to notice how it is that we're reacting. Because I think if you, if you notice yourself reacting emotionally um, or trying to avoid what it is that, that that's uh, the information that's coming at you, those are the telltale signs that you might have a, a belief that needs to be examined. Mm. I think something that you brought up in in what you sent me was the um, that I find very useful is considering how much pushback and uh, pushback people will, um, will give you when you kind of confront their beliefs. And like, I wish someone could have given me that information five years ago when I like when I was in a different place with my fiance. Um, that would have been like that would have shortcut a lot of arguments and kind of made things a lot more pleasant for for both of us. Um, so like, yeah, how do we how do we approach other people who um, may have conflicting beliefs with us? And how do how do we like if we think we know the truth? How do we how do we go about that? It's a huge challenge because sometimes it feels like you know 
it's just so so important to us to that that uh, the person change their mind or agree with us and you just really wish that they could see what you see is the truth um i think that you know I, I don't have a great answer for this and this is something that we are spending a lot of attention in our research to now because i think it's a really important problem you know how do we actually influence people uh, who don't want to be influenced or who may have very very different beliefs from us one of the things that we found that that helps is to spend some time trying to understand the person you're trying to communicate with and what the values they hold are that connect with the belief. A lot of times the beliefs are, are connected to deep underlying values that we have. So uh, for example, we did some work during COVID to try to see how could we, how could we communicate about the benefits of mask wearing with people who really don't think that masks are worth wearing. And the first step in that process was to understand well, why don't these people want to wear masks? And what, what is really important to them that, that's driving this belief? And in the case of, of the United States, most of the people who didn't want to wear masks were people who had conservative political beliefs. And for them, the values that, that most predicted their mask wearing behavior were their belief in the value of personal liberty and their belief in their loyalty to the country, actually. These values seem to connect up with mask wearing. Once you know what the, what the important values are, you can try to speak to those values. It makes it much easier to communicate with the person. It's really a form of empathy, I think, understanding what, what, what's driving the other person. So in this experiment, we took our messages about masks and tried to frame them in terms of these values. You know, masks are, if you're loyal to the country, you want to protect America. This is actually a way to do it because the older people who fought our wars for us, the veterans that, that are you know, vulnerable to COVID are, are going to be uh, helped by reducing the spread of the of the disease and, and things like this. So if you sort of frame your your communication in terms of the things you know your audience cares about, then you might have um a, a better success rate. Yeah. Um it sounds kind of trite and reductionist to say like listening. Um really understanding and listening is um really important. You also sp spoke about like there's a few kind of takeaways and applicable steps um that you mentioned as well of like self-affirmation buffers the effect of challenging information. Why do you why do you believe that's the case? It's specifically challenging information that challenges beliefs that are related to yourself. You know, so if if challenging a belief that's important to you is going to challenge your your idea of who you are, it helps to have some some buffer to, to feel good about yourself. So that you, know, you can absorb a little bit of that bad feeling that you might get from, from hearing that one of your beliefs is wrong. So yeah, there's a couple of experiments showing that if you ask people to spend some time thinking about what the good aspects of themselves are, to, to build up your self-esteem a little bit, you know, write a little essay about what are, what are your four best qualities, spend some time doing that. And you get in that state of like feeling really nice about who you are, um, then you are, are less defensive when somebody challenges something that that's related to yourself because you already have a little bit of, of, of a confidence in yourself. Yeah. It feels so, like you've got more certainty to tolerate some uncertainty. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. That's interesting. What are you excited about in research at the moment? Like obviously like you spend your time like waiting for, or not um, thinking of things to research and seeing research happen the whole time and in the, in a research based environment, like what, what are you excited about seeing? Yeah. I mean, in my in my own work, the things that I'm excited about now, the studies that we're doing about uh, misinformation and trying to learn about 
uh, how people make decisions about what, what sort of information they share on social media and what's happening in their brains while they do that and when they how that influences whether they decide things are, are true or, or false. We have some really exciting work going in that direction. Um, probably from the rest of the of the world, what I'm most interested in, in in neuroscience is what we talked about in the beginning is all the developing uh, data from psychedelic research to understand what's happening in that state of mind, what's going on in the brain that, that underlies that. Because to me, that's one of the, the central keys to understanding consciousness. So I, I think that's really great. And I'm excited to see what happens from it. Who's leading that research? Oh, there are many people around the world now. Um, there's uh, Robin Carhart Harris has done some great work uh, when he was in England. He's now in, in San Francisco. Um, and there's a group at Johns Hopkins that's done some great stuff with uh, psilocybin and, and the treatment of certain clinical disorders. So as it becomes more and more um, available through the regulatory mechanisms, we're going to see more and more groups popping up doing this research. Yeah. To wrap things up, there's a few questions I'd like to ask everyone. One of those is a very obviously stolen question from Tim Ferriss's podcast, but I like it so much and I find it really interesting. Um, what books have you gifted most to others? Oh, that's a really good question. What books have I gifted most to others? Okay, I will say I can think of three. Um, one is uh, Werner Ving is the author of Rainbow's End, I think it's called. Um, it's science fiction book, and it's about um, augmented reality. It, it actually, maybe less compelling now because augmented reality is getting so close to reality. But it was really visionary at the time, and um, talks a lot about uh, it's a a um, future where everyone has uh, retinal uh, contact lenses that uh, corneal de devices that allow you to see overlays on the world and connect to different networks of of reality that people share. That's really interesting. Uh, to me. Uh, the other one I would say in my field is Consciousness Explained by Daniel Dennett. Um, one, of the, one of the first books that really changed my mind about the way consciousness works. How so? Um, I, I think he does a really good job just kind of uh, dissecting some of the, the illusions that we have and some of the assumptions we make about the way our own consciousness works. Um, and this is written back in the '90s, so it's it's been it's been a while now. But uh, that that book definitely uh, influenced me. And then I'd say any one of Antonio Damasio's books, probably, um, you know, the the one that I read originally back in the day was Descartes' Error. I think that might be a little bit dated now. I know and Antonio's views have progressed quite a bit, and uh, he has a new book that just came out um, called uh, Feeling and Knowing. And uh, I think his perspective on the way that uh, biology, uh, the way that consciousness arose in, in biological systems is, is really insightful. What habits do you perform for your own mental health and performance? Not enough. Hmm. Um, it's always the answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, uh, I'd say... Having some connection with nature, I think, is probably the most the most important thing. And you know, living in a in a city here in Los Angeles, I, I do live in a place that's semi natural. But uh, uh, I, I think that's one of the the best things we can do for our mental health is have have some regular interaction with some kind of natural system. For me, it's the ocean. I really like to be uh, in the ocean, surfing and body surfing, really, where you can feel that that connection with the the forces of of nature just pushing you around. I, th I think it's really important for mental health. 
you also access that flow state that that weighted rotation or unweighted states like it's just like it's it's, it's funny as well how like it's either like it's water skiing mountains like this the, everyone has their own little flavor for it that's right yeah it's true um and then finally where can people find you like where can people follow what you're doing uh, well, I'm on Twitter at Jonas underscore Kaplan. Um, they, uh, I would also recommend if people are interested in some of these things to listen to uh, my podcast that I did with Mary Sweeney, who's a filmmaker. The podcast is called Float, and we talk about the creative process, and we speak with filmmakers and scientists and try to get to what's in common about the way they, they work in, in creative ways. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Jonas. I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time. Thanks, Tom. It was a really great conversation. I'm Tom Foxley. Thank you for listening to the Limitless Athletes podcast. Following this episode, we may or may not be releasing the debrief, which is kind of a summary of this. If we do, we do. If we don't, we will at some point. This will be a kind of practical application of what you just heard, how to start it if you're an athlete or if you're a coach and you want to apply it to your life, um, your training and your coaching career. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes and leave a five-star review and some kind words. Also, Spotify does a very similar thing now. So if you want to head over to Spotify and do that, that would be much appreciated too. For further mindset training resources and tools, head to mindsetrx.com or find us on Instagram by searching for mindsetrx. That's mindsetrxd. Next week, we'll be bringing you another interview. So listen out for a fascinating one.